everybody welcome back to the last question uh it is thursday i have no idea what day it is which is really bad i've got a computer handy though thursday july 15th 2021 um if you're a regular podcast listener to this show or any other show you probably realize that i'm not recording uh on the day of release sometimes i do particularly for monday morning meditations uh, it's not unheard of for me to be up at, well, I'm up at 4.30 every day, but it's not unheard of for me to be in the basement about 5, 5.15 recording the that week's meditation uh, for a variety of reasons. But certainly for Thursday episodes and absolutely for longer shows where I'm talking to someone, where I've got a guest, uh, that's a scheduled event. And uh, then it may take me a couple of days to edit, work with audio a little bit, and then gets posted and it's probably releasing that very next week. So not too often that the, that there's a lot of lead time between recording and release. Uh, but in this case, there's almost a week, actually just, just over a week. Um, which I've wondered whether that's necessary to talk about useful to talk about, you know, if I was talking about something or if we had a guest on that was talking about something timely, something, newsworthy, something that's really driven by current events. You know, a short lead time to release probably makes sense. But, you know, I think a lot of what uh, I'm looking for and what I'm talking about and what our guests are talking about on this show is meant to be evergreen. It's not meant to, it's not meant to answer to a particular time and place, but it's in fact meant to speak to any time and place. Um, really the variable is you and me and where we are in our own development process. There are things we talk about. There are things I say, and in fact, the topic of today's show that I'm, that I'm going to share includes lessons that I was not prepared to learn 10 years ago, 15 years ago, probably even five years ago. Um, we're going to, we're going to talk about a book for a few minutes um, and a reinforcement of a lesson that really I just got today um, and kind of see where this goes and go from there. As always, if you've got feedback, questions, comments, requests, like the music, hate the music, if you are interested in seeing a certain guest on the show, if you are interested in coming on the show, any and all of the above, please email us, ask at thelastquestion.blog. Feel free to find me on the interwebs, on the internet, online, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. That's where I am primarily. Uh, and you can also find the show's website, plain and simple, at thelastquestion.blog. You can get a hold of me through there. You can subscribe to the blog. Um, and then you'll get assorted other nonsense and announcements from me uh, every so often. I don't send too many emails out to those of you who do subscribe to the email list. In fact, it's been a while since I've sent a note out. It is absolutely not a judgment on you. Uh, if anything, it's a judgment on me. But in truth, um, you know, I'm working on a lot of things. Uh, you guys who've been around a while know that uh, I've got plenty going on at work in the day job, quote unquote. I've got plenty going on in other uh, uh, territories in my professional and personal life. So you know, when I have something to announce, certainly I will leverage the email list and talk to you all directly. But until that point, this is really my primary medium. This and, um, and social media uh, are my primary media where we can interact and where we can exchange ideas and where we can push each other and where we can talk and debate and ask any question we need to ask. Um, you know, I think this is this is going to be a meditation coming up in the next few weeks after the uh, COVID series is complete. But just as a bonus, if you will, I'll ask you right now, what question have you not asked that you really need to or really want to? I think all too often 
the conversations we avoid are the ones that we have to have, the ones that we must have to not only develop ourselves and get better, but more than likely to help someone else get better. Um, I got so insanely frustrated at work, uh, in my old job at least, at, at people and at supervisors and at institution, institutional, um, what's the word? Offices. I don't, that's, that's not the right word, but I got so frustrated at people who would either not ask the question or who would evade answering the question. Right. And so, you know, I, I would often tell, I told students, I told cadets this, I told my peers this, um, a couple things. First off, Leadership doesn't happen in passive voice, which sounds esoteric and ridiculous. It makes me sound like the grammar police, which I kind of am in some cases. But if I ask you, you know, why did this happen? And you, and you say, well, the decision was made that we would blah, 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 blah. Who, my very next question is going to be, who made the decision? Who told you to do this thing? Who told me to tell you? Who, who is the person to whom we can attribute responsibility? What responsibility can we take? Let's fix the glitch and move on. But I, I lost count of the number of times people would just try to hide that, that subject of the sentence because it seems like you're doing a favor for someone. You, or it, it, it is obvious you're trying to hide something. Bottom line, it is obvious you're trying to hide something. Um, and it blows my mind. We, we condition people. I'll say right now in the, in the Air Force, we condition people to talk that way. I've heard it in the private sector. I've heard it elsewhere. So it's not unique to the military or to the Air Force, right? But it, it blows my mind how much fidelity in a conversation you lose simply by removing that subject, right? You're not attacking the person. But at the end of the day, if we have to figure out what went wrong in a situation or what went right, well, who made the, the decision? And if you're afraid to, to mention that person because you're afraid of consequences, then the institution has a larger problem, right? If you're afraid to take responsibility, period, that's bad. Uh, okay, so leadership doesn't happen in passive voice. The other thing that I learned over time is that when you ask a question like that, why this happened? What were you thinking about when this happened? What were you thinking about when you made that decision, right? The longer it takes you to explain yourself, the longer it takes you to, to dance around to the point, the less likely it is that you are telling the whole truth. So why'd this happen? And then I spend 15, 20 minutes telling you, well, you know, so we were talking about the decision and I held several meetings and we sent several emails. I ended up going uh, on a trip to the West Coast. I wanted to talk to these guys and see the key was I, I just wanted to make sure that I had, see all of you, most of you are, are probably already asleep, if not already gone. I don't know how many listeners I just lost in that moment, making up a bunch of bullshit when really the answer is I used the wrong info. I relied on this too much. I did not research this. I blah, 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 whatever the case is. So I, I'm trying to remember now how I got off onto this tangent. Uh, oh yes, I remember. What's the question that you need to ask that you're not asking? Um, not the subject of today's show, but I just kind of landed there. And so um, we'll talk about it again on a meditation in the future. And I'd love to hear what you think. Find me wherever online. But the fact is the conversations that we're avoiding are probably the ones we must have and are probably the ones that are most important on the, on the list of to-dos. So uh, anyway, that's my take. Agree or disagree, of course, if you like. Um, what else? Hopefully you enjoyed last week's show with Joey Utah. I was excited for that show. Hopefully you got something from it. Hopefully... Uh, if you found value, you shared it with someone else. If you get value from this show, yes, I'd love to hear that feedback, of course. But um, more importantly, share it with someone else. Let them know they can send feedback, subscriber or not, positive review or not. I want to hear it all. I want to know what you think. And I want to know how the show is landing. And I definitely want to know if you've got ideas for um, what this show is about and what this show can do. Send those my way also. Uh, it, this is meant to be an organic living thing. Um, you know, I'm not producing a historical documentary here. So, okay. So what are we actually talking about today? I'm just going to take a few minutes 
And for those of you snickering, I, I get it, right? My few minutes usually turns into 45 or an hour. I'm going to do my best to keep it concise. I've wanted to talk about this for a while, for a couple of weeks since I finished the book. And I kept, I kept running into false starts. And it, which is ironic considering the book, which I'll um, talk about here in a minute. But if, you, if you're a longtime listener, I've only been around since March 2021, so you can definitely catch up if you like. But if you listen to the first episode, Cynicism, Cynicism Perfection, and Resistance, um, you heard me talk a lot about my own uh, battle is probably too strong a word, but my own cynicism that frankly developed uh, in large part due to my experiences on active duty. I didn't, I don't think I was that clear about it uh, in March or April because I was on active duty and there are still things I didn't think would be appropriate to say. I don't regret for a minute my time in the air force because it led me to where I am today. But the reality is I encountered far more bad leaders than good. And I encountered many in my peer group and, and many who uh, younger than me, junior to me in, in time and experience and rank, who perhaps they joined for the right reasons. And, and then over time, that, those reasons are clouded over by career aspiration. So I developed a certain amount of cynicism. I developed naturally, and I think this, is, this has been part of me since well before the military, I've developed a certain amount of perfectionism. You know, it's got to look a particular way. It's got to feel a particular way. I really want to avoid negative judgments. Um, and none of that is what a leader is supposed to do or say. Right? So the first thing to understand is, right, all of us are imperfect. None of us are perfect, least of all me. So I don't sit here. Uh, I don't want you to think that I'm just sitting here pontificating from a microphone because I had all the answers or have all the answers or ever expect to have all the answers. None of us do and none of us will. Uh, you know, like I told my crew members and like I told my students all the way till the end of my time on active duty, the best you can do is the best you can do. In my case, um, a good amount of cynicism and a good amount of perfectionism combined for a whole lot of resistance. And if you've ever read Stephen Pressfield's War of Art, uh, he he capitalizes the first R in resistance and speaks to it, talks about it like a like an enemy on the battlefield. And so it's a book, I think, originally written for creative types, for writers, artists, but I would tell you anyone can pick up that book and get some value from it. Um, it's kind of unique in the way it's formatted. He's got plenty of other books. He writes fiction and nonfiction. Um, but The War of Art was, it's not even the book we're talking about today. So here I go on another tangent. But real quick, The War of Art really tries to highlight what resistance is and help you getting, get on the road to fight it. And in my case, I had a ton of resistance. I enjoy the podcast medium. I enjoy audio. I think I'm better fit for audio than for video. And yet it took me forever to finally pull the trigger and, and get a microphone and get some of the equipment, which is not expensive and not hard to get because, you know, because Amazon. Um, but even recording and publishing my first few episodes, I still, to this day, it's been several months. I've gotten positive feedback on the show. I've gotten negative feedback on the show. I've gotten positive and negative feedback my whole life, my whole adult life, certainly. Uh, so that's nothing new, but I still will face resistance at times, not because I don't like doing this, but I think deep down because I'm afraid that I'm, you know, I'm going to waste my time. I'm going to screw it up and it's going to take me forever to get it just right. And the reality is I'm never going to get it just right. I just need to get it the best I can. So let me get to the book and hopefully this will make sense. The book is called Relentless, From Good to Great to Unstoppable by Tim S. Grover with Sherry Lesser Wank. This book has been out for a while. Uh, if you know who Tim Grover is, uh, he's an athletics trainer, owns a company start called Attack Athletics. He's from Illinois, Chicago area, I think. 
uh, and he's been doing, he's been a trainer and a coach focused on mindset, focused on not just physical rehabilitation, but mental rehabilitation since the mid eighties. He's got an advanced degree in exercise science. And when he was just starting out, I'm not going to retell his whole story. He's, he's all over the podcast airwaves. Um, copyright 2013 for what it's worth. He's all, he's all over the podcast airwaves. He's done several interviews lately because he's got a new book out called Winning, um, which I just had land on my doorstep uh, yesterday. So for you, last week, by the time you hear this, I will have finished reading it and more than likely we'll do a show on it and uh, we'll talk a bit about it in the blog too. But he graduated with a master's degree. He started to work at health clubs, but he started to develop a philosophy for rehabilitation and training that was different than the norm. It was a different focus. It really, it leaned heavily on the mental side of things, right? The, the 80%, 90% of the game, quote unquote, that is mental. And he really pushes people to the limit, not just physically, but mentally to prove to them how much more they can do if they are serious about it. Uh, just to get a sense for who this guy is, um, coming out of the health club, gym, traditional club space into his own as a business owner and as a trainer for himself as an independent guy, um, he sent cold letters, if you will, to every player on the Chicago Bulls roster except one, Michael Jordan. Uh, and to hear him tell it, it was based on the idea that if he was going to land anyone as a client, he'd love to work with the Bulls, but it definitely isn't going to be MJ, right? The um, unquestionable star and leader of that team, you know, all through the 90s. Lo and behold, Michael Jordan is his first client. So if, as a side note, if you are starting out as a consultant or a coach, Uh, or any type of services industry where it's you, yourself, and you. Tim Grover did that, and his first client was Michael Jordan. So don't shoot too low and don't sell yourself too short because it's definitely doable for a a no-name at the time, someone nobody really knew to land the probably the most uh, powerful and best-known player in professional sports at the time, or one of them at least. So anyway, his first client's Michael Jordan. He counts Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade and Charles Barkley among his other clients. He was very close to Kobe Bryant. So uh, as you might expect, it's tough for him to talk about Kobe uh, since he passed away last year, since he was killed. But I picked up the book because I originally heard Grover on a podcast interview. And he has... There's a lot in this book that's interesting, but what he talks about a lot, and he was being interviewed for the second book, right? So there's some context here that's that's, um, unique to that. But what he talks about a lot is the difference between people who who are just good at what they do and survive and, and perhaps do well, perhaps they earn an accolade or two, but it is not a driving force for them. And those aren't his words. Those are, those are my words. That's me trying to synthesize it. There's a difference between people for whom what they do is not a driving force for them and the people who are the driving force and who are the ones that everyone looks to in crisis, that everyone looks to when under pressure. And those people also can be the ones who want to be the one under pressure. So he, he has three different categories of people. And of course, you know, most of his analogies, most of his stories are coming from the basketball world, but the, the truth is, right. You can apply this to anywhere you are business, private sector, public sector, military. Um, If you are self-employed, if you're a business owner, I think it absolutely rings true. He talks about three different kinds of people, coolers, closers, and cleaners. And defines them as he goes. So I'm not going to read the entire book for you. I think you absolutely should pick it up if you're interested in it. If you're interested in understanding the mindset of someone who wants to be unstoppable at what they do. But as he talks about coolers, closers, and cleaners, he goes through a list of um, 
All right. So uh, you, you probably heard a little bit of a gap there. I think it's largely transparent to listeners, but just got to admit I had to pause the recording, take care of something in the house. So um, what was I? I was talking about coolers, closers, and cleaners. And I have my copy of the book open <clears throat> to one of the chapters. All the chapters, incidentally, are numbered one um, because every element, all of the elements that Grover presents uh, related to being unstoppable are all important. So you know my take on what happens when everything is important, um, but I'm going to put that opinion aside. So there's, like I said, there's plenty in this book that that's, I think, of interest, especially if you, if you have a deep passion for something, if you are deeply engaged with an idea, even if it seems impractical, even if it's um, something you think is so beyond you financially, logistically, uh, geographically, right? Something you really want to get into, something you're passionate about, work you want to do, a cause you want to fight for. You know, one of the, one of the things that I think is worth, well, let me just re rely on Grover. So he talks about a couple things that I will highlight, right? And, and one of them is instinct. And another one is what happens when you get into the zone. So actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So hold that previous thought. Let me read you a piece, just a small piece from the book. Um, and then I'll, I'll explain why this one uh, is one of the parts that stuck out to me the most. When you're a cleaner, you get into the zone, shut out everything else, and control the uncontrollable. A cooler gets everyone cranked up and emotional before the game. A closer gets himself cranked up and emotional before the game. A cleaner never gets cranked up or emotional. He stays cool and calm and saves it all for game time. So that part made me think of my own past experience. Uh, on active duty. And I, th I think part of what made my transition such a challenge, uh, I loved what I did. I loved being a missile operator. I loved working in such a unique mission area that, that even the majority of the military had no idea what we did. Uh, and that can be a challenge, right? When you are trying to justify funding when you're trying to talk to people about how our mission can support you or how you need to support our mission, right? Trying to explain ICBM ops to an F-16 driver is a challenge. Um, but I loved it, right? It's a mission that doesn't get enough credit. And to be honest, it, it's, it's kind of a mission area where you don't want to hear about them all the time, right? I did a job where combat experience is the last thing you want. And it's the last thing any of us want. Uh, nevertheless, we were ready for all sorts of um, pretty dire scenarios. But what sticks out to me about this chapter is, you know, I loved what I did and I was, I was decent at it. I'll say it that way. I was decent at it. And so what I remember, not just about my early days, right? Because I was as nervous as anyone starting out in that career field. But by the time I got into my fourth year, fifth year, I'd had some, I got lucky. I got some great opportunities to see some unique stuff. I got to compete. Um, we used to, well, we, they do it now. I think still that they, they have a competition between crews in the simulator where really they just throw everything in the kitchen sink at you and challenge your ability to work through a complex operational environment. Um, and then I got some additional training and between the training I've had and the assignments I had, the, the truth is I never was scared or tense or emotional about going to the field. And I knew people who were, I remember people in my first assignment when I was young, I remember folks in my second assignment who always felt some amount of tension deploying to the missile field because they were so afraid of getting something wrong. So afraid of getting in trouble, so afraid of, jeopardizing whatever future career prospect they thought they had, you know, outside of the missile community. 
And so that leads to emotional responses. It can lead to bad decisions, right? It can lead to absolutely a lack of confidence and it leads to weak leadership, not because they're not capable, not because they're not smart enough, but because they're afraid to act, but because they're too nervous, because they're, you know, they're hyped up, but for the wrong reasons or in the wrong way. And I was, I was talking to a friend of mine, a buddy of mine, he and I were stationed together at Minot, North Dakota. And he got out of the Air Force from Minot, went on to, he went back to school and now he's uh, successful as a civilian, married with a child. And I try to catch up with him when I can, but you know, it's, it's usually several months between conversations. So we spent two and a half hours the other night on the phone talking about all sorts of things. And I, I got, I don't know how we got into it, but we got into, um, I don't know how we got into this, but uh, I was comparing my experience as a brand new deputy commander on my first alert with a crew commander, nice guy, both my buddy and I knew him, uh, but it was the only alert I would ever pull with this one crew commander. And uh, well, so on this first alert, I go out, I'm, I mean, I guess scared shitless would be the right way to put it, right? I, w- I felt ready and I was ready to start the real job right after all the training. But when you sign for custody of, of our most powerful weapon and several of them, Right. There still is, is probably some amount of paranoia and concern. Um, so anyway, I'm nervous. I'm paying attention. I'm doing everything I can by the book, letter by letter. But at some point, your crew partner goes to sleep. And even when you're the newest person in the field, your crew partner needs to sleep. Uh, it's not good sleep, regardless. Even if you're sleeping overnight, it's not the best sleep in the world. But my crew commander finally goes to sleep. You know, I can wake him up for anything, asking questions. There's, there's folks in the field he trusts that I can call. And uh, I'm operating. I've got the console. I've got the flight area. And um, I won't go into too much detail. You can find pictures of what the React console for the Minuteman weapon system looks like. But, I mean, it's 70s, 80s era technology, just to be clear. So um, prepare to be wowed. But on the keyboard is a toggle switch between two screens. One screen we use to communicate, the other screen we use to, to check status of the weapon system and, and to do different things. And what commonly happens to newer crew members, or at least did at the time, was if you toggle too quickly, or rather if you toggle from one screen to the other and then mess with the trackball, Yes, we had trackballs. If you don't know what that is, consult a parent, an old uncle or aunt. Look up trackball on Google. If you toggle and then move the trackball too quickly, you would get uh, a fault. You would get an alarm and it w- the console would make some noise and it basically tells you something's broken. Now, over time, you come to learn that some faults matter and some faults don't. Some faults are a result of the, the programming perhaps a, a uh, not a bug but a loophole and some faults mean something's actually wrong uh, in this case the alarm and the associated text on my screen and everything screaming at me amounted to nothing really broken but i'm brand new and i have exactly half a day of experience in this job so uh, my procedure tells me to call maintenance control on the base i do that And uh, for those of you senior in the missile world, in the operations world in particular, you probably know what's coming. They told me to restart the computer. That's not the exact language they use, right? But for probably obvious reasons, I'm not going to use all of the terms that are relevant. But the point is, I got to restart the computer. Well, and actually they say this over an unclear or a clear telephone line, right? So I need you to do a WSP restart. WSP restart is probably one of the most quoted phrases in the missile field uh, and one of the least useful, at least at the time. The procedure tells them to do that. It tells us to do that. It's not the fault of the maintenance controller. Uh, It is our lack of imagination and ingenuity. In any case, I'm told to restart the computer, which means a whole lot of other things have to happen, none of which I've ever done before. And it's kind of a significant deal to restart the computer because you're basically shutting yourself down for a few minutes. Uh, so I'm like, well, 
okay, can I get your initials and uh, anything else you got for me? Nope. Okay. Wake up my crew commander. And he's like, what in the hell are you doing? Why are you doing a W3 restart? Go through the whole thing. Long story short, he calls maintenance control back and says, hey, we fixed it. Turns out you can do a restart, but there is another way to fix it, which is a workaround and which at the time senior leadership would have called a field procedure and would have frowned upon severely. Uh, having that level of knowledge and proficiency with a weapon system wasn't what won the day. What won the day is simply how literal you could be with the checklist. There's a point to this, and I know it's going to seem like there's not. Fast forward seven years, eight years, 2009 to 2016, whatever that is. I'm in the field. Uh, I am not at the command post, which really doesn't matter, but I'm in the field. I'm out with a crew commander as my crew partner, so relatively senior in the unit. I'm old anyway, old relative to the crew force. My crew partner is, I think, three years in, so she's experienced. You know, we're going out. We're not expecting too much drama. We do have some high sensitivity, um, high profile movement going on, right? We're, we're moving weapons, but it's something we've done before, both of us. And so we are confident in each other and we go out and we change over with the crew like normal. And no kidding, the moment I sign the paper, she and I both have to sign for custody. That's a real thing. The moment I sign after she does, we get a phone call. And our security forces, brothers and sisters on the base, want us to basically do something that would have forced the entire missile complex to shut down and would have collapsed, you know, tens, dozens, if not a hundred or so security forces members onto a site would have shut down every other operation going on in the missile complex for the rest of the day would have turned into notifications to four star general officers. And we would have been pointing guns at each other to be clear. They wanted me to take an action that would have led to not just delay in a major maintenance movement, but it would have led to us pointing guns at each other until we clarified the situation. So I'm on a conference call with security forces folks. My crew partner's listening in. Of course, the offgoing crew, normally in a rush to get home, like anyone would be, they're interested. And I remember in my head thinking, this does not seem right. And it seems like a terrible idea for me to just do what I'm being essentially told to do. Legally, they can't tell me to do it, but they're telling me to do it. I'm like, no, I'm not buying this, right? So we look up the reg we, and, we, and I try to work out what has to happen in this scenario and uh, come to find out all the required steps had been taken, but late. And because the steps were taken, but late, per someone's arbitrary standard um, that someone decided to tell me to go in, you know, not guns a blazing, but to go in and shut this, this uh, maintenance team down. I didn't do it. Seven years prior, five years prior, maybe even three years prior, I might have for fear of getting in trouble. But of all the stuff that happened around that latter scenario, of all the questions I had in my head, of all the questions I was being asked, I don't remember being nervous. And I remember, I do remember, once I made the decision, you know, I'm looking at my crew partner and, and I was adamant, right? No matter how it went, it was going to be on me. She wasn't going to take the fall if it was a bad decision but she absolutely supported what I was, what I was doing. And so if, if it went well or went fine, as we were predicting, right, then my job was to let the commander know, hey, she was right on board. She was helping me with this and that. She found these resources. And we said together, no, we're not going to do this. And, and the end of the story is a happy ending. But the point I'm making is in both of our cases, really, this isn't just about me. In both of our cases, we weren't nervous. 
We weren't getting emotional. We weren't freaking out. We were trying to have a normal, even conversation while some of the folks on the other end of the phone were kind of freaking out. So is this me calling myself a cleaner? I don't think that's, I, I'm not that guy. I can't do that. But the reality is I wanted to be a person who was in that boat, in that position, in that moment. I thrive under pressure for better or worse. And in that job, after the amount of time I spent trying to learn that job and trying to get damn good at that job, trying, I wanted to be a guy in the moment that counted. I wanted to be someone who could react to the pressure situation, provide top cover for the others involved, and come out of it knowing that for better or worse, whatever the decision was, it's coming back to me. And I'm good with that. I can handle that because I know why I made the decision and I'm confident in what I knew at the time. Information is always incomplete, but I knew what to ask at the time because I had worked as hard as I possibly could to get that good to be ready for a situation like that. There are other situations that I remember not getting emotional about. There are situations where I did get emotional. I'm terrible in a staff meeting, for example. Uh, I generally don't like them. I generally don't think they are useful in the, in the time we're spending, but I get emotional because people will argue for things that really will just lead to disadvantage for the airmen, for the cadets, for the students, whoever that population is. So I'm definitely not perfect in keeping myself unemotional and not cranked up. But what struck me about this passage, what struck me about those definitions for the cooler, the closer, and the cleaner is that for that thing you have where you are absolutely passionate, driven, there's a fire inside of you that, that leads you to be preoccupied with this idea or the job or the task, right? You might be an athlete. You might be a business owner. You might be a medical um, a healthcare worker, you might be a mom or a dad, that might be your thing where you aim to be a cleaner. You don't want to be good at being a father or mother or nurse or physician or whatever. Being great would be nice, but what you really want is to be unstoppable. It sounds pompous. It sounds arrogant. And I've never really said this to anybody, but looking back on the way I treated that job and the work I did, I wanted to be unstoppable. Not because I wanted to run people over, although I know that some of my peers and some of my, I know there's people who thought that's what I was trying to do. I was not good at relationship dynamics and I'm still working on it, but I definitely was not good at it then. But I wanted to be unstoppable because my team needed me to be unstoppable because I could help the team become unstoppable or at least become great in their own right if I myself always walked into those pressure situations first. What situation is there out there for you where you know beyond the shadow of a doubt you can walk right into the middle of it, right into the thick of the storm and take care of business? I would challenge you to think about that. Ask yourself that question because I bet you it, it may not be at work, right? So if you're thinking about this in terms of your job and you're like, there's no, I hate my job. I hate everything about my job. I hate going to work. I do it because it pays the bills. Literally, that's it. I get that. I get you. I've been in that boat. Maggie and I both have been. We've got family members and friends in that boat. I, I understand that. But then all the more important to ask that question because if it's not work, what is it? There's something there. There's something out there. Where are you unstoppable or where do you want to be unstoppable? And I think, I'm ho I hope this is making sense. I think where, where this book really landed for me as a transitioning military member, right? I've talked about how difficult it was to, to pull my identity away from the uniform and to define myself by something other than missiles, nuclear ops, right? The Minuteman, whatever, all that stuff. I think what really landed is, is the idea that being unstoppable 
being a leader, a true leader in your space has nothing to do with the organization, the game you're playing, the task. It's you. The, the habits and the mindset that you develop that let you become unstoppable in whatever your thing is, you still have. I want to become unstoppable at what I'm doing now. I, 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 Maggie and I talked about this when I was struggling because I was in the middle of a pretty heavy training and testing regime that only ended last week. I've got one more test, but the, the bulk of that work is in the past now. And there were some high stress days because essentially if you fail the test once, you can be let go from the company. And I enjoyed the material. I liked the technical side of it, right? Which to some of you may not, might not be surprising at all. But I wasn't perfect. The practice tests were going okay, right? For the last test, my practice test scores were going down. By the time I took my last practice test, um, two of the last three were failing scores when I walked into the official test. So, but, but what I was really struggling with wasn't so much, you know, if I fail a test, but I did the best I could leading up to it, that's all I can ask of myself. And I, and I get that, right? And that's the motivational part. But the reality is, I want to be good at this. I want to be great at this. No, I want to be unstoppable at this because I want to help others become unstoppable if this is what they want to do. I wanted to make the, the best operators I could in my last job. And I wanted to be unstoppable and I wanted to be somebody who was a go-to in pressure situations. It, because we all want to feel needed and we all want to feel useful. And I am not that guy in every situation by, by no means, right? I'm, like I said, I'm useless in a staff meeting almost. And I learned a ton of things about myself. I, I learned about a lot of things I couldn't do trying to teach college kids, trying to teach um, out West when I was teaching in the weapons school program. I've had tons of experiences that have, that have shown me what I cannot do well. And in some cases, I've been able to work on that and develop a skill and get better. In other cases, I, I, was, I could not get myself onto a good path. And all of that is my responsibility. But where I, where I knew what I needed to do and where I absolutely wanted to be the best I could be and wanted to be unstoppable among the group of unstoppables. Cause it's not just me and it's not ultimately about me, but where I knew I wanted to be unstoppable was at the console was as an operator. I didn't give a shit about the office work. I had to do it. Writing performance reports on your, on your airmen, right? On your folks. Yes. That's a necessity for supervisors. You're supposed to do it. Don't make them do it. You're supposed to do it, but I didn't enjoy doing it. I didn't enjoy writing EPRs and OPRs. I don't know that anybody does, no matter how good you are at it, but I enjoyed being at the console when shit was going down and it was busy. Right, Saturday, Sunday alerts, we took them because we wanted to give other folks the weekend, but man, those were some boring times, right? Because nothing's happening. You're not getting pushed. You're not getting tested. To go back to Tim Grover's point, in, in relentless, right? A cleaner wants to get tested. A, a cleaner wins a game or wins a series or wins a championship and celebrates maybe for an hour, for an evening, for a day. And then the next day looks back at him or herself and realizes, here we go again. The work starts all over again to the next win, to the next championship to the next highlight, to the next milestone, whatever it is. I appreciate that process. I enjoy that process. To some extent, I enjoy the pain that comes of that process because of what it leads to on the other end. So today, just today, uh, I tried CrossFit again. I've got a gym about a mile from my house. I was a member at a gym pre-COVID. Um, working at Ohio State, there was a gym about a mile and a half away from us. It, convenient, could run there midday as a warm up, do the workout, run back, jog back, walk back, uh, and that was my 
you know, lunch hour, lunch half hour, or lunch hour and a half, whatever. Um, and then COVID, right? The gym shut down. They did some online stuff, really wasn't keeping up with that and decided uh, it was best not to be paying for that membership, right? So fast forward to now, I miss it. I'm a distance runner. Some of you know that. And I've spent most of my adult life as a distance runner. So five or six days a week, pounding pavement. If I'm lucky, some grass or dirt trail, but mostly pavement and concrete. And that takes a toll. And it gets boring. Because yes, even someone like me who does enjoy running can still get bored of it when you're training for races and, you're, and it's five days a week on the roads. But the other reason I missed something like CrossFit, right, is because it sucks. It is hard to do. The workout today was a light workout, quote unquote, what they call the light workout. And I was gassed at the end of it. I was gassed halfway through it. Whatever. I'm not going to lie. I'm not very good at pull-ups. I am holding in a farmer's carry position, right? So a dumbbell in either arm. 35 pounds in either arm, stepping up onto a, a, a 30 inch plyo box. 10 times, 200 meter run twice, and then pull ups, and then the reps go up from there. You don't care about the workout. Point is, by the middle, it's a four round workout. And by the end of the second round, I am, well, I'm getting, I'm gassed. Sweating buckets. It's hot and humid outside. It sucks. And I loved it because I know how I'm going to feel after it. You know, when I go for a 10 mile run, 12 mile run, I feel great that I did it, but this is a different feeling because I'm not necessarily hurting or suffering through that run. And it's probably because I'm not working hard enough. I get, I get it. I hear you. There's somebody out there said it. I get it. But you know, oftentimes it's just me, maybe with the music, with some music or a podcast Sometimes I'll, I'll take stretches in silence. Regardless, after 10, 12, 15 miles, yeah, I'm sweating. I'm tired. It's a great workout, but I'm a distance runner. It's what I do. And so it's not, it's not pushing me the way I should be pushing myself. But a 20-minute Metcon destroys me. And it's awesome because I need something that will push me to that limit, that will break me through that limit, and that will make me suffer, for the lack of a better word. That's not the right word to use, but I need to feel that kind of pain and that kind of push, not only to get better, to feel like I'm unstoppable when I'm running. CrossFit's done wonders for my running times, incidentally, right? Because... It's high-intensity interval training, and as the research continues to tell us, long, slow mileage isn't necessarily the answer, and especially if you've got, you're getting old, you've got joint issues, or you don't have time to run 15 miles a day, CrossFit or something like it's a great alternative. The point is, I get tons of work done in a third the time, feels terrible during, and then I feel fantastic after that is my win post-workout i'm winning because i feel like i did something and i pushed myself to a limit that was real for me absolutely real i needed that process and so whether i'm a cleaner or not i want to be and being a cleaner according to tim grover absolutely means you embrace the suck. You embrace the process. You embrace the pain of the work. And you, in fact, embrace it so much the win doesn't mean as much as the work. I know I'm going back to the gym tomorrow. I know that workout's going to suck. I could rest on today's win and say, oh, I'll skip. I'll go in another day. I'll, I'll do like an every other day thing. That's, that's doable. Bullshit. I can't. I can't. If I do, you know, if something happens or if I got to take care of something family related tomorrow, yeah, I'll, I'll skip if I have to skip. And then I'll get antsy. If I skip 
because I'm lazy, because I oversleep or because I double book myself and I can't make it. Or if, I, if it's because of me, if I've done something dumb or I make a bad call, if I miss the workout, I'm going to hate myself and I'm going to feel like crap because I need that push. Where do you need that push? Right? If you haven't asked yourself that question by now, ask it right now. Where in your life do you need that push? Where in your life do you need that push? Um, here's the other thing I want to bring up. You should read this book. Um, the podcast I was listening to, right? The host made a point of saying, you know, I read this book and I have a lot of these tendencies, but I always thought I was strange. And something this book helped me realize and helps others realize is that you're not strange. You may not share your passion with other people, or perhaps there aren't other people around you, but you're not strange. You are simply driven in that particular part of your life. And if you want to be unstoppable, what it's taken me a long time to understand and to learn is that you shouldn't apologize for that, but you need to be open and honest about it. I want to get damn good at what I do professionally. I also want to be a great husband and a father. But the reality is I am driven by really three big professional goals uh, that I haven't really talked about on the show because it's not about me, even though it seems like this entire episode has been about me. But those three goals together present for me the part of my life where I absolutely want to be unstoppable. And it's taken me a while to be honest with that because it seems, sounds, feels selfish. And I don't want Maggie to think that just because I'm trying to shoot for this particular thing or to be unstoppable in this particular area that I'm going to neglect every other duty in my life, that I'm going to ne neglect our boys and the house and our dogs and my responsibilities, just taking care of things around home, all the other stuff, all the pieces of life that we all deal with. Just because I want to be unstoppable, just because I'm shooting high for this, this thing over here or that thing over there doesn't mean I neglect everything else. But it's becoming impossible for me to ignore those, those fires in my psyche and in my life. What are the fires that you can't ignore? So to the last point, he talks in another chapter about being born relentless. We're all born relentless. Sorry, just taking a, a, a drink there. We're all born relentless. If you think about your kids, if you've got kids, you've seen this happen. If you don't, maybe you've seen it happen, but just think about it. Kids, especially young children, my two and a half year old, we'll use him as a prime example, seemingly have no fear and no filter. They tell you what they want to tell you. They tell you what, you, what they mean. And they try everything at least once. Sometimes not food. But for the most part, if, if my son wants to know what it feels like to tumble off the sofa onto the hardwood floor in the basement, he's going to try. He wants to know. And no amount of, of, of cajoling or resistance or requests from mom or me matter. If he wants to say something to me, he says it. When he wants to get his word in at the dinner table, he, he says mommy or daddy constantly until we acknowledge him. He is relentless. So Grover says we're born relentless and then taught to relent. Can you re even remember a time when you weren't being taught limitations and compliance, watching what everyone else was doing, scrutinizing the options, worrying about what others would say? At some point, you stopped doing what came naturally and started doing what you were told. You took all your crazy urges and ideas and desires and you stuffed them down where no one could see. Let me be clear. I'm not talking about breaking the law. I'm not talking about hurting other people. Those are not the urges he's talking about and that's not stuff that you're supposed to act on. You shouldn't act on it. And I think if you're listening to this podcast, you know that that's not what I'm talking about. Um. But what he's talking about is the instinct that we're all born with 
that helps us understand what that fire, where that fire is and what it is. What are those driving forces in our lives? Where can we be the best driving force in someone else's life and in a particular professional lane, in a particular specialty, in a particular community for a particular cause? Where am I best fit, right? What is your purpose? It sounds like that. What is your next mission? It may sound like that. If you're a transitioning military member, this is a hard question. This has been an incredibly hard question for me. What is driving me now? And where am I driving? What am I driving toward? I think I know. I've got an answer to that question. I've shared that answer with my immediate family. And I, and I think, I hope she understands a bit more where I'm coming from and why I'm distracted at times and what I'm distracted by. At some point, we were all born relentless. And then we were taught to relent because it's such a dynamic world and there's so many people out there. It is far easier to talk about limitations and what you can do than to talk about all the possibilities that we've yet to invent and that we've yet to think about. I started to think about what do I really, how do I want this next chapter to look? If I could construct it all by myself, if I could construct the ideal week, the ideal work schedule, the ideal combination of professional endeavors, what would I build? And it didn't come out looking like anything I had been taught existed before. Not, not that I'm inventing a new industry, but simply if I'm looking to do more than one thing, I'm weird. Some of you are agreeing, yes, I'm weird. But the reality is each and every one of us has that weird inside them. We are just taught that to succeed is to be hyper-specialized in a narrow lane and niche your way all the way down to something so minute and finite that you won't step on somebody else's toes, make some money off of that, and you'll be good to go. And in some cases, that, that works. There is a place for that type of advice. Specializing helps. Right, You want the best neurosurgeon you can find if you have to have surgery on your brain. You want the best cardiologist. You want the best podiatrist for your feet. Whatever the category is, whatever the example is. At the same time, if I've got multiple body parts in play and I don't understand why it's all happening at the same time, I'm the one stuck talking between the cardiologist, neurologist, and the podiatrist because the three of them spend all their time studying their part of the body. So like with anything, it's a dichotomy. There's a give and take. But as I've told, as I've told people close to me and as I've started to, to tell more people, I'm simply too curious and I have too many questions to keep my feet planted in one place. Now, I can't be planted everywhere, and that's a, that's a decision from my family and me to figure out you know, where, where the line between what I want to happen and what can happen. Right? That's a conversation for us. But the point is, I am slowly defining and putting in more detail to where I want to be unstoppable. And where I want to be unstoppable, where I want to be great, where I want to be the best that I can possibly be, absolutely is a place where I want to lead and want to be the best leader I can be. Because I cannot, by definition, cannot be unstoppable in that space if I'm not also the leader that that space needs me to be. So, Tim Grover highlights Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade. MJ in particular is famous and infamous, right? He's one of the best. He's, he's one of, if not the best basketball player in NBA history and is also famous for being incredibly harsh, abrasive, direct, abrupt with his teammates, with his friends. And apparently, I have not seen The Last Dance, I, I think, that's the documentary that I, I want to see. I have not seen it. But as the story goes, right from his telling, 
from Jordan's telling. He was that way because he knew that pushing those buttons would bring out better versions of those people. Agree or disagree, that was his standpoint. Now, I've, I have come to reevaluate my own take on positive versus negative feedback and, and how you train and how you teach. But the point is, Jordan led the way he thought he needed to. And I am not, for the record, Michael Jordan. I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jordan. But the, but the point is, what I think someone like that acknowledges and what I have to acknowledge is to be unstoppable in any space means to be a leader in that space. You cannot simply be the go-to person under pressure. You cannot be the cleaner wherever you are. You cannot be the one that wants the pressure situation and is asked to take care of that problem if you are not a leader because you won't have their trust. So I think to, to close us out, to wrap this up, I could go on and on about this book. I definitely recommend it. I have not read his second book yet. I will let you know how that one goes. More than likely, I will recommend that one as well. But this is the, is the last point I'll make or the, or the last thing. You know, I talked about what landed for me and some of the stories from my past, from my military time that I thought about as I read this book. But ultimately, this book is absolutely a leadership book. It's not a skills book, uh, personal development, sure. There's some business type stuff in here that you can glean. This is ultimately a leadership book. You can, be, you can be good. You can be a cooler and lead in certain cases. You can be a closer and lead in more cases. Or you can be unstoppable and lead in every situation, invented or uninvented. If you're unstoppable, you're ready for absolutely anything the world throws at you, uh, at least in that space. And so what I challenge you to think about, what I, what I encourage you to think about, hopefully this has helped maybe put some things into perspective. Hopefully this is leading you to ask some questions. If nothing else, if you disagree with everything I've just said, good. Hit me up with a question. Email me. Find me on social media. Send me a DM. Engage with the idea, even if you think it's crap, even if you disagree, engage with the idea. That's what matters. But I would encourage you, I encourage you to think about where in your life you are unstoppable or want to be. If you're unstoppable in your life somewhere, be honest with yourself about it and then ask if that's where you want to be, if that's where you want to stay. Nothing is permanent. Nothing is forever. Maybe you are unstoppable in the space you want to be in and you have found that perfect combination. Maybe you are the MJ of your world. If you're not, or if you don't think you are the MJ of any world, maybe that's causing some consternation. Maybe that's causing resistance to do certain things. Maybe that's, that, maybe that's leading you to question yourself to not feel good about yourself or your station, your family, your friend circle. Each and every one of us has the ability to be unstoppable. We have the capacity, but we have to figure out what that space is. If you're a transitioning veteran or an active duty military member, ask yourself this question. And don't do what I did. And what a lot of people are forced to do or feel like they have to do is ask yourself that question within a context of, well, where can I be unstoppable and still make enough money to survive and to support the family? Yes, supporting your family is your responsibility, but don't ask the money question first. Ask where can you be unstoppable? Where do you want to be? Where do you want to push? Where in what space would you want to feel the pain of the work every day and be happy about it? You have got to be happy about the work to be unstoppable in your space. If the work is humdrum or so-so or really just leads you to complain about it all the time, right? We've all been in that, in that boat somewhere at some point. If you cannot find the fire somewhere, 
And if you're not proving to yourself that you can be unstoppable in that space, you need to ask yourself some follow-on questions. In what space can you be unstoppable? Where will you appreciate the pain of the work every day? Uh, Tim Grover's book is called Relentless from Good to Great to Unstoppable. I haven't talked about a book on this show in a while. The last one was The Psychology of Money. Um, Morgan Housel, if I got the name right, I'm sorry, if I, Housel is the last name. Uh, but there were some other things that we talked about on that show as well. Uh, I'm looking to do more books over time. Leaders are readers. Harry Truman was right. You need to be reading. You need to be learning every single day. Uh, and all the more important, if you're reading stuff by people, about people who don't look like you, think like you, sound like you, live like you, every perspective matters. Uh, this book helped me put some of my own tendencies, behaviors uh, into perspective, into a different light, and also helped me articulate what is uh well, what is wrong with me, if you will? I use that term lightly, but you know what I mean. So this is the last question. I hope this show was of value to you. If you're still left here at the end, thank you. Genuinely, honestly, deeply, I'm grateful for you as a listener, grateful for you as someone connected to us. Even if I don't know your name, uh, the fact that you've given this show a chance and, and perhaps that you've shared it or at least told someone else about it means the world. Um, this, this show exists for one reason, to build better leaders who will go on to build a better future. That's it. But to do that requires talking about all sorts of stuff. So we're not going to shy away from anything, but the purpose and the theme uh, will always be there as a through line. So if you've got ideas, questions, comments, feedback, anything, email us. Uh, email me, email us, ask at thelastquestion.blog. Find me, Arun Chatur, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can still find the enabled word name uh, across those platforms, but I will tell you I'm interacting a lot more often now just using my own name and not the enabled word name. Um, simplifies my time a, a little bit, and I think simplifies the experience for others I'm talking with. So, uh, So that said, have a great rest of the week. No matter where you are unstoppable, no matter what it is that you do during the day, no matter what your family life looks like, no matter what community you're in, take a breath of fresh air and remember that every single day we wake up is a gift. Hug a loved one and let them know how important they are to you. Get out there and lead well, and we will talk to you soon.